Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. A neighbour of ours played the mouth organ. He was a quiet man with a full beard and indigo eyes, but shy. You'd have to coax him to pull the harmonica from his top pocket and play. Although he was born into our community, he was still regarded as a newcomer, a blow-in. Perhaps this was because he had chosen to reside elsewhere for many decades before coming home and living amongst us. He liked to ramble the lanes and fields of our locality. His name was Tony and his wife's name Jane. They bought and renovated a small cottage in the townsland of Physicianstown a few miles outside Callan in County Kilkenny. The house was on a by-road off a by-road beside a bridge that separated two counties, Tipperary and Kilkenny. Here at the bridge you could see where the tar and chip from both counties butted against each other, creating a variation of both texture and hue. Tony was a man who observed small things like this. Ours is a flat inland place. When we raise our eyes to the horizon, we see only fields, tillage, hedges and ditches. Our world is small, but big enough to accommodate whatever it is that we need. Tony was different to us in this respect. He had lived in places we might only dream about. We were vaguely aware of this. He didn't speak of living in a bohemian community in St Ives, Cornwall, or the Bahamas, or St Lucia, or Lanzarote, or even the Scilly Isles. Perhaps he believed that if we were aware, we might not have been interested anyway. Growing up in that district, I often thought it a place maybe overlooked by cartographers, somewhere lost forever along the worn crease of a map. Tony and Jane liked to stroll in the evenings and often dropped by to see us, to have a cup of tea and play a few tunes. The seasons cycled along here, as they do anywhere else, and we gradually became used to the quietly spoken man with the mouth organ. It was something of a surprise then, when we discovered that Tony O'Malley was famous. Not just famous, but world famous as an artist. His work was prized and collected. Wherever Irish art was exhibited, his was there at the core. We hardly knew any of this because he just never said. We also learned that Tony was self-taught and that he was a keen observer. His blue eye missed little during his sojourns around our district. What to us was the workaday ordinary, to him was a thing pregnant with possibility. Sometimes I think of him around this time of year. Since the 60s, Tony O'Malley made a new painting in or about each Good Friday. His Good Friday pictures are an important part of his oeuvre. Many of them created with blackened wood, nails and slate, they capture delineations of suffering and redemption. They reference the rituals of Western Christianity while still offering us nuances of older religion and beliefs. Tortured shapes reflecting the pain of crucifixion and sacrificial death. We may be a community preoccupied with the everyday, but Tony walked amongst us, observing all, serene and quiet. A twisted crown of barbed wire atop a fence post, 
a knotted rope of baling twine supporting a sagging collapse of farm gate. Even that weathered board, lopsidedly fastened with a crooked nail. All of these were symbolic images that fed into his artistic imagination. He is recorded as once saying, Painting is a mystery like poetry. Silence is important, you have to listen. It's available to you as long as you don't presume. You arrive at the work. Don't confront the painting, asking what it means. Like the Chinese proverb, allow it to be just there on the wall, ticking like a clock. One year, a retrospective exhibition of Tony's work was shown in Kilkenny City. As neighbours, we received invitations to attend the showing. We stood there in the gallery with our hands in our pockets, looking up at the ticking clocks. And if we quieted our minds and remained silent, we might catch the flash of a trout's belly in slow water under that old bridge. The shape of a crow's wing against an evening sky. The contrasting shades of a half-ploughed field, a falling star, or a reflection of clouds in an ice-rhymed puddle. He had caught our small world using canvas, paint and collage and made us wonder. Sadly, Tony O'Malley passed away in 2003. He was 89. There was a great turnout for his funeral and afterwards the morning neighbours were agreed on one thing. He was a great man on the mouth organ. In April 1921, among all the other stories of violence and bloodshed in a war-torn country in the pages of Irish newspapers, is an account of the last hours of a distant relative. Christopher Reynolds, my grandmother's cousin, called Kit or Christy by various family members, was a 23-year-old part-time Gaelic footballer and full-time insurance agent. A handy sort of job if you happened to also be an active member of the IRA, as it gave you a good excuse for travelling around the county and country, relaying messages and carrying out orders as called upon. On the night of April 1st, Christopher had risked stopping in at his home in Rathfarnham to see his father who was gravely ill. The British forces had uncovered his whereabouts, however, and his name was included in a list of men to be picked up that evening. Almost exactly a century later, the dialogue as recounted in court reads like an O'Casey play, one with a dying father, a heartbroken mother and a young son caught up in national events. Just after 11 o'clock, two loud double knocks brought Christopher's sister to the front door, where four armed men in dark jackets and a military officer demanded to know who was in the house. They began a search coming across Christopher at his father's bedside. You're the man I want, said one. Put on your coat or I'll blow your brains out. Christopher's mother pleaded with the men. 
he'll not take a son from his dying father. I am sick and tired of dying fathers, came the reply. They are all dying in this place. Have you no mother of your own? Oh, yes, six or seven mothers. Mothers be damned. It's all right, mother, said Christopher. They are only taking me to the barracks. I'll be back in the morning. No doubt trying to offer her better reassurance than he likely himself felt to be true. Christopher was taken away in a lorry, and what happened next was revealed through his own deathbed account the following day, and that of a man who was with him, Bernard Nolan, a 32-year-old tobacconist's assistant who gave a detailed interview to the Bureau of Military History more than 30 years later. Living close by, Bernard was awoken and arrested shortly after Christopher by the same group of black and tans. Knowing the level of comfort to expect in Dublin Castle from prior experience, Bernard put on all the clothes he could conveniently wear and took his place beside Christopher in the lorry, which pulled off, driving through Terenur and Rathgar and coming to a stop on a pitch-black Rathmines road. Bernard told Christopher to say an act of contrition and he said a fervent one himself. According to Bernard's account, the two prisoners were instructed to stand. A volley rang out, and when Bernard came to, they had fallen out of the lorry, having been shot several times, and were lying on the road. Christopher was, to all appearances, dead, while Bernard put his experience as an amateur actor to use, managing convincingly to feign death himself. This is all the more astounding, given the very considerable pain he must have been in, as four bullets were later removed from his back. Limp and apparently lifeless, Christopher and Bernard were roughly thrown back onto the lorry and driven to the King George V Hospital in Arbor Hill, dragged out onto stretchers and brought inside. Medical staff were told that these two dead men had been involved in an ambush and had been shot while trying to escape. Bernard continued to remain motionless, hardly daring to breathe, but when their captors had left, Christopher began to regain consciousness and he asked for a priest. While the hospital staff were staring at the young man, amazed that he was still alive, Bernard thought that it might be a good time to come back to life himself and so he sat up on his stretcher, further adding to the dumbfounded astonishment of all present. The tans had not gone far though and hearing the commotion of the dead arising, they ran back into the room, guns raised. At this point, the hospital military guard stepped in, seized their rifles from the rifle rack and stated that the two patients, dead or alive, Sinn Feiners or whatever they were, were now in their charge and that they would open fire rather than give them up. This undoubtedly saved Bernard's life and he made sure to tell his story to other men on his hospital ward and he told Christopher to do the same so that if they did not survive, the facts would come to light at an inquest. There had never been much hope of young Christopher recovering, however. A couple of years later, in an application for a dependence gratuity, his mother described how her darling son had been riddled with bullets back and front. Christopher died of his wounds on the afternoon of April 2nd. The incident and the mysterious circumstances surrounding it led to a quickly assembled military court of inquiry in City Hall, and the trial provided a significant number of newspaper column inches as witnesses were called and the story unfolded.
a number of witnesses from the Crown forces put the alternative case that Christopher and Bernard had made a run for it when the lorry had broken down near Portobello Bridge and that the two IRA men were shot as they fled. This became the officially accepted version, the one that appears in state documents of the time. But family members are inclined towards the personal accounts. And though we know that Christopher's was just one of countless violent deaths on every side on this island a century ago. One hundred years down the road, it seems fitting, at least, to remember him. Dance. While others go about their business, she grips my hand, coaxes me to the hall where the sun illuminates Venetian blinds and paints the rug with stout grey lines. Zara stands on shadow bars, delights in the absurd marionette with dandelion hair and spider arms, obeying her command. I join her game and our puppets dance from floor to wall, stretch spindle fingers to the ceiling, until she tires suddenly and goes, leaving my shadow bereft, spectral hands still reaching upwards. In silence I wait for her call, certain that I will follow. Last month saw the sad passing of baseball player Hank Aaron. His death made headline news in America and around the world, though for many outside the US, this would have been the first they've heard of this remarkable sportsman. Most news coverage focused on images of Aaron in the uniform of the Atlanta Braves hitting a baseball over the left field fence to break Babe Ruth's 39-year-old home run record. When Hank Aaron hit that home run on April 8, 1974, it was not just a sporting achievement. It was also a milestone in the story of African-American civil rights. Hank Aaron's baseball career began in the Midwest city of Milwaukee in 1955, the same year that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man on a bus in Birmingham, Alabama. In a country still riven by segregation, Aaron was one of the first generation of African-Americans who were permitted to play in baseball's major leagues. Though no one could have predicted it, Aaron began an assault on Babe Ruth's record in Milwaukee. By April 1974, millions were willing Aaron to reach the magic number of 715 home runs. But there were plenty more who couldn't countenance a black man breaking the most hallowed record of America's favourite game. 
and Hank Aaron had boxes of hate mail and death threats to prove it. My own connection with Hank Aaron came in 1976, after Aaron had returned to Milwaukee to finish his career. I was nine years old and had also returned to Milwaukee, having lived in Ireland for three years. In July, I saw him play in the flesh for the first time. It was also my first Brewers game and marked the start of a lifelong sporting relationship with baseball, that most American of games. It was the hottest day of a Midwest summer when my brother and I sat in the cheap seats under the blazing sun. By the time the game was tied at the end of the normal nine innings, Aaron had made little impression on me. I was suffering a serious bout of sunstroke when, in the bottom of the tenth inning, Hank Aaron came to the plate and, with a swing of his bat, ended it with baseball's most dramatic of endings. He hit a walk-off home run. As Aaron rounded the bases to win the game, the crowd rose to him with an enormous cheer, as if the home run had just won the World Series. As a sports commentator might say, the place went bananas. In reality, the game meant nothing. The Brewers were having a particularly terrible season, even by their standards. They were in last place and destined to stay there for the rest of the year. But that wasn't the point. Everyone knew that it was Aaron's final season and that home run was sure to be the last, or one of the last, of the players' glory moments. After the teams left the field, the crowd stayed standing, calling out for Aaron to return. After at least five minutes, Aaron came back from the dressing room. I watched him with my brother walk up the steps from the team dugout and, in the simplest of gestures, lift his cap to acknowledge the ovation. It was a truly remarkable moment. Three years later, in 1979, my Milwaukee summers that had been filled on a daily basis with Brewers baseball games that I watched and my own games I played in came to an end when my mother, sister and I moved back to Ireland. Years passed, then decades, and my Americanness receded ever further from my conscious mind. But I still loved baseball. Eighteen years ago, when our son was born, my wife and I decided to name him Aaron. We passed on Hank. To provide a tangible link to the best days of my childhood, epitomised by that home run by Hank Aaron in July 1976. When Aaron was the same age that I was when I saw Hank Aaron for the first time, I brought him to his first baseball game in Milwaukee. Outside the stadium, I took a photograph of him in front of a statue of the man he was named after. Then, just before the game, by sheer chance, in a scene straight out of a Kevin Costner movie, a ceremony took place featuring many of the great Brewers players of the past. One by one, the players I had watched as a child walked out onto the field. And then, as I stood with my son, the greatest of them all was introduced. But instead of stepping out of the dugout to salute the crowd, Hank Aaron, with his arthritic knees, was driven out in a cart. But again, he raised his hand in simple salute to the people of Milwaukee. This time, I stood with my arm around my son and tears in my eyes. Over the years, my son Aaron and I continued to share our love of baseball. And so it was more than fitting that it should be him who broke the news to me earlier this year of the death of his namesake. And equally fitting was that he just happened to be wearing a Milwaukee Brewers shirt at the time. This week, as Aaron prepares for the leaving certificate and I continue working from home, our thoughts are on baseball 
Thursday is the opening day for the Milwaukee Brewers season. Between now and October, baseball will be part of our everyday conversation. And while I might have named our son after the greatest of players, I have condemned him to following one of the least successful teams in baseball. But that doesn't matter. Because opening day is above all a time of expectation, a time of optimism. With the weather warming and summer days not far off, there is a deep-seated hope that this season, perhaps more than any other, will be better than the last. If I pitch, can you catch? Will you hold the ball? When you step to the plate, will you swing and fall? If you play, As traveller viewers, there is no doubt that there will always be an opinion about our hair. It's not a question of colour, texture or length. It is more about what our hair symbolises. For many traveller viewers, our hair brings self-love and pride. It is considered our most precious possession, our crown and glory. While historical images of traveller viewers are scarce, those that are available often show how traveller women wore their hair in an adorned and creative fashion. The hair, be it in plaits or buns, was always out over her rug on her shoulders. This is unusual in that other minority ethnic women, for religious or cultural reasons, tend to cover or hide their hair. How we look, how we dress, how we speak has always been under surveillance by outsiders. Whether we're infants, children, teenagers, mothers or grandmothers, our hair has always been a signifier of our ethnicity, but also a talking point or social marker. Internally within the community, regardless of the changes that were forced on us, our hair has always been a source of strength and beauty. We wash it, we fix it, we style it, and in the same breath we love and hate it. Racism has not changed very much for travel viewers. When making an appointment in the hairdressers, there is always still a worry of being refused entry. Often we are turned away from a hairdresser the day or the morning of a wedding, then there's the contemporary bullying and teasing of young traveller lackeys because of their long hair. My earliest memories are of my grandmother Bridget. She wore her hair in two long plaits until the day she died. The ritual of island hair has passed on to her grandchildren. It was a form of female bonding. The comb was often referred to as a rack, which was carried in your beady pocket. When my sisters or my mother would try and coax me to sit still for hair combing, my bowelness and contrariness would be acted out. Then I would be put sitting on an upside-down milk crate with a rug, flanked either side by Mary and Winnie, my sisters. Mother or grandmother would stand behind me, their knees cradling me, acting like a human armchair. The teeth of the metal comb would hurt, especially if my hair looked like a bird's nest, which it often did. But the combing was gentle. The hair oil smelled like gooseberries and other wintry fruits. While my mother poured it and rubbed my scalp, my compulsion to drink the oil was overwhelming. My mother's hands and fingers would gently tease the oil into my head. Slowly she'd comb and divide it into three different parts. Each of the three parts would be crisscrossed into a tight, neat plait. My mother was a small woman, just under five foot. She took on the establishment. The row was over my hair. 
I was attending a special school for children with disabilities. Short hair was considered manageable and I was told I should have my long hair short. Long, it would command too much attention. But to us, short hair seemed to take away any sense of individuality. My communion was in eight months. Mam dug her heels in. My mother and grandmother didn't just succeed in laving my hair long. They managed to put it in ringlets under my communion veil. By the time of my confirmation, it was down to my hips. By then, all the girls in special school had learned to grow an aisle and plait their hair. The hair aisle was considered contraband. It was great fun aisling and plaiting each other's hair. This was a small revolution, but an important one. My mother took enormous pride in my long hair, but at 17 I was pulled in another direction. Most of my settled friends and peers had short hair. My massive mane seemed out of place. My memory is blurry, but the row with my mother was real. The shock, the disappointment, the anger and rage. The words that passed between us, they are etched in my heart. Every inch of me knew it was wrong, even at the time. I watched clumps of hair fall to the ground as my friend Grania snipped and snapped with the scissors. Neither of us knew what we were doing. We were trying to copy a pixie punk hairstyle from a magazine. This new hairstyle was a metaphor for a kind of internal conflict in me. Somehow a message of shame related both to my ethnicity and my disabled body had infiltrated my sense of self. My experience of short hair taught me many life lessons, mostly around judgment, perception, freedom and choice. As women, we were rarely forgiven for the mistakes we make, but Mam forgave me with an abundance of love. The two years of growing my hair out were excruciating, but after that I wore up styles, plain styles, work styles and fancy styles with a certain pride. Like many travel women, my hair is my trademark. While working, I wear it wrapped in a loose knot. For family occasions, my hair gets all the attention. Conditioning, straightening, curling, enjoying my hair is my greatest pleasure. Now it gives me a sense of elegance and grace. This combined with my disabled body is the perfect pevy aesthetic. Black is the colour of my true love's hair Her lips are like some roses fair She has the sweetest smile and the gentlest hands and I love the ground It's hard to believe that 15 years have passed since we gathered at the Matter Hospital to see him off on his last journey, back to his native Leitrim. I didn't know John McGahern well, but I felt I wanted to be there to pay my respects to a man whose books had brightened and enlightened my teenage years. A man with whom I once had an interesting and very non-literary lunch. But more of that anon. I first discovered John McGahern's work in my college days. His books, needless to say, were not widely available or available at all in our boarding school. My arrival in UCD coincided with my unearthing of McGahern's work. Devouring the barracks and the dark, I discovered a voice that I had only heard in Cavanagh's poetry. For me, the excitement in his writing came from an exploration of a rural world I recognised immediately. 
McGahern's countryside was Leitrim and Cavan. Mine was Kildare. But the deeper similarities were striking, and better still, his work uncovered a world where the ordinary, the commonplace, the unremarkable, could be the subjects of fiction. His books reassured me that literature didn't just spring from London or New York, that not every book needed a high degree of agitation and tension, that the quieter, more real events of our lives and the landscapes, which had once seemed dull and uninteresting, were filled with the possibilities that Kavanagh had written of in his poem Epic. McGahern opened a gate for me and led me through fields that were ordinary and humdrum and at the same time filled with the extraordinary possibilities. Years later, when I found myself reading at a festival with him, I wanted to tell him this, to let him know how much his work had influenced my own, how important it had been in reminding me that in the end what happens anywhere happens everywhere. I prepared my few words, knowing we'd be having lunch together once the readings were done. And so it was. I arrived at the restaurant before him. He was still wading through questions and books to be signed and people wanting photographs long after my solitary signing of a book. Eventually he joined me, sitting heavily into his seat across from me. Great reading, I said. And well done yourself, he replied. The waitress took our order. When she had left, McGahern leaned across the table and said, Can I ask one thing, one indulgence? Can we talk about anything other than books and literature? Of course, I said. And so we did. We found a shared interest in cricket. And when that particular avenue had been explored, we talked about cattle and farming subjects about which he was much better informed than I was. When the lunch ended, we shook hands. I hope we meet again, he said. Me too, I said. We never did. So, at this remove, I want to say thank you, John, for opening that gate into landscape, for reminding me that all human lives are fascinating, for showing me that we need look no further than the hedges and hills, the houses and fields about us, for the inspiration and the stories that make inspiring books. Fifteen years late, but I wanted to say it out loud, in the hope that somehow or other the words will reach you. On this morning's programme, we heard The Good Friday Paintings by Joe Carney. April 1st, 1921, was by Clodagh O'Donoghue. Dance, a poem by A.M. Cousins. Hank Aaron, My Son and I by Tim Carey. Crowning Glory by Rosalind McDonough, read by Kathleen Lawrence. And Lunch with John McGahern was by John McKenna. The music was The Coolin' by Brendan Power on harmonica. Songs My Mother Taught Me by Dvorak, played by Joshua Bell on violin. Carl Orff's Gassenhauer by the Carl Pinecoffer Percussion Ensemble. Baseball Boogie by Mabel Scott. And Black is the Colour by Christy Moore. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And to find out more about this programme and other RTE arts and culture programmes, have a look at rte.ie slash culture.
You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.